and welcome to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern. I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, how's it going in uh, you know self-isolation in Colorado and in Washington? Are you surviving? Surviving. Surviving. It's uh, The weather is getting nicer, which helps a lot. So we can go outside and go for walks and play in the woods. And Yeah. Yeah. So we miss... We miss the way things were, but we're settling in. I think yeah. people are figuring out how to settle in to this. How about y'all? I am going a little stir crazy. I'm doing okay. After we record this podcast, I have kind of something fun happening. I'm recording. Well, I'm meeting with the cast who's been helping me develop my play. My play is about Edith Wilson, the wife of Woodrow Wilson, who was present during World War I. And um, so we were planning on meeting, you know, face to face for another reading of the play because I rewrote it and I haven't been able to get together with my cast since all this broke out. So we're going to meet online and I was, I was part of, okay, so I'm going to like take everybody into the play for a second. The play is about Edith Wilson in essence, secretly ran the U.S executive branch for about 18 months and people would jokingly refer to her as America's first female president because she kind of was her husband had a stroke when he was not far from you Heidi he was in Colorado on a whistle stop tour supporting the League of Nations and he had a stroke he's kind of like perpetually in bad health the latter part of his presidency this is after World War One and they weren't sure what to do. And so the doctor of the president recommended, hey, why don't we just let Mrs. Wilson run the executive branch? She can show him the kind of like vital documents that he needs to pay attention to. And she can broker the vital conversations that he needs to have. Um, And so anyway, she ran the presidency. But as part of the play, there, I kind of try. I wrote a scene after he's had this stroke in which everyone outside of the White House is wondering what's wrong with the president. And I had this little idea. I was like, I wonder what's going on out there in the great big world that people would worry that the president had. And so I looked up, um, you know, like all sorts of rates of illness and mortality in 1920 and you know what i did not spot because i was looking in the wrong place apparently was i did not spot the spanish influenza because that's what everyone was like they were dealing with an epidemic that now everybody's comparing our pandemic to that epidemic but i missed it in the statistics but now I'm going to go back and like work that into the play that people are worried that he has the Spanish flu. So that's our literary pandemic relevant tie-in for the day. <laughs> well, um, I, having read ahead in the Anna Green Gables series, you <laughs> show up in the Anna Green Gables series at any point. There are no pandemics, but there's plenty of sickness including in this particular section of the book, actually. Exactly. Uh, and, and comes to the rescue. We are, of course, here to discuss Anne of Green Gables. We are going to discuss chapters 17 through 21. And uh, before we do that, I want to let you know how you can join the conversation. Head over to Facebook, join the uh, Facebook uh, group there. And just search Close Reads in the search bar and you'll find it. Uh, on Instagram, we're at Close Reads Pods. You can get the newsletter, closereads.substack.com. And if you want to email us, you can email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. All right, let's, let's dive into this book. Um, Heidi, I wanted to ask you about something, having read this multiple times, and then I'm going to flip it over to you, Tim, in a sort of different way. So as I was reading, I, I hadn't read this book in a long time, but I vaguely remembered some of the scenes from the series, the TV series, which we've talked about before. But I was thinking about how, you know, when you read the scene, say, where... And comes to the rescue of Diana's little sister, um, Ellie May, right? Minnie May. So, Minnie May, Minnie May, yeah. Um, 
there, you know, the stakes get raised a little bit. There's a little bit of tension. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, you want to know what's going to happen. And so all those sorts of things, you know, you, it's become a little bit of a page turner there for like four pages. And I was wondering if for you, having read it many times, you read passages like that differently than you think people would who are like excitedly wanting to know what happens. I'm going to go on a limb and say, probably you do. And so if you do, what is it? What are the things that particularly stand out to you about those sections in the book? Or are maybe those sections in the book kind of like in between the things that that you actually like about this book? Right. Yes. I know I read them differently than someone who's reading it for the first time, partly because since I already know it's going to happen, then I'm not reading for the plot. I'm not reading to find out what happened. So I'm paying, I think, more attention to the language uh, and to how this might connect to what I know about Anne's future life. And I think that is where I go with this book when I'm reading it now, especially because my kids read this, especially Lucy, my daughter loves this series. And She's read it before, but she's still reading it through the eyes of a child. And so when I read it, I'm I'm often reading it through her eyes versus my own at this point. And so, and then here's another layer of interpretation for me. And I I'm not sure if this is unique to me or if this is just kind of a normal way of reading something you've read a million times. Um, and I kind of think it's both, but I am reading so much of this book this time uh, as through the eyes of how each individual experience or anecdote is formative to Anne. Like knowing her entire life, thinking, what is it about this little moment in Minnie Mae's with, with her saving Minnie Mae? It leads to her restoration of her relationship with Diana and also gives her, makes her feel useful, helps her know that even her broken past has some redemptive purpose here in the present. Uh, those kinds of things, which I, I, I don't want to take it too far because this is a children's book and not a psychological study. And I know that. Um, but I love how as a craftsman, Montgomery kind of chooses you could tell how thoughtful that she is. It's not just that she's writing the next thing that comes into her head. She's crafted a life for Anne. And each of these early experiences becomes a part of the woman that she becomes someday. So it, it seems like um, the faculty that's most important to Anne is her imagination. And it's yes. the faculty that sort of that that presumably got her through the orphanage and her imagination is so engaged with nature. Um, she renames all of the lakes and the streams and the hills and the houses. And she renames them when she arrives at her new house. Um, but it also seems like her imagination is the thing that gets her in trouble most frequently. It's like, it's the bridge into her anger oftentimes. Um, and it's the thing that Marilla is most frustrated. And in some ways, when Marilla gets frustrated, sometimes it's not justified, but sometimes it is justified. And those times when it is justified, she's frustrated at Anne's imagination has gone wild. So I wonder what Montgomery is, what is Montgomery Anne's imagination? Is it a two-edged sword? Like you mean, how is the author herself judging Anne's wild imagination in the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like it's it's developmentally, it seems like it's just it's the thing that in many ways has kept her alive and it's made her who she is. But it's also it's a troubling aspect of her development, I guess. I think that what Montgomery is doing, especially in these early books. Um, it is goes back to the ancient kind of Christian idea of the proper ordering of loves. Mm. It is, it is Anne's faculty for imagination, her capacity to live in the veil between heaven and earth. That is 
the goodness of Anne. And Montgomery thinks, and I agree with her, that this is an underdeveloped part of most of humanity. Mm. So I don't think it's a double-edged sword, but I do think that absolutely the humor and the kind of underlying more serious contemplation is what to do if that goes a little wild, right? Like what if the river overflows its banks? What if it's not properly oriented towards the right object and controlled and uh, so that it is going towards goodness and growth? And, yeah. and Anne has, she needs that. And so Marilla's role in her life, uh, at least one of the roles that she plays is by being so prosaic and so mundane that she helps Anne learn how to, it's a pendulum swing, right? Like she's, she's at the other end of the, uh, the, the extreme on, they're the extreme on two sides to use Aristotle's mm-hmm, terms, mm-hmm. right? Here's Anne with no control over her imagination. And here's Marilla with, uh, with no uh, development of her imagination. Yeah. And they together, move towards the mean between the two extremes. Um, and they help each other get there. But I, I don't think it's the double-edged sword in the sense yeah. that she's exploring whether or not imagination is good. I think she's saying imagination is good, uh-huh. but uh-huh. needs to be controlled. And Anne doesn't know how to do that. And that's part of what Anne of Green Gables is. Now, the so it's, whole se- it's part of a whole series. And most people, a lot of people read this as a one-off book. They read it as a standalone novel, which is perfectly fine. But in the context of the whole Anne canon, it is very clear that Anne's development towards finding that mean makes, like, empowers her to be a redemptive force to everybody that she meets, uh, including herself and Gilbert and her children and everybody. Um, but she does learn in this book how to control her imagination. It's, it's, it's interesting that right around the middle of the book is chapter 20, which is called A Good Imagination Gone Wrong. <laughs> it seems pretty clear that Lucy Maud Montgomery considers Anne's imagination to be a good thing. But then this chapter, of course, is all about... Um, yeah, there's this... There's this um, hilarious line where you know marilla is making Anne march through what she has the haunted wood <laughs> i mean convinced herself is a haunted wood yeah to, to go bring something to diana's mom or something like that um and Anne says it's on 235 in my book uh it says Anne might plead and cry as she liked and did for her terror was very real her imagination had run away with her and she held the spruce grove in mortal dread after nightfall but Marilla was inexorable. She marched the shrinking ghost seer down to the spring and ordered her to proceed straight away over the bridge and into the dusky retreats of wailing ladies and headless specters beyond. Oh, Marilla, how can you be so cruel? Sobbed Anne. What would you feel like if your white thing did snatch me up and carry me off? I'll risk it, said Marilla. (laughs) Best line in the book. You know I always mean what I say. I'll cure you of imagining ghosts into places. March now. Anne marched. That is, she stumbled over the bridge and went shuddering up the horrible, dim path beyond. Anne never forgot that walk. Bitterly did she repent the license she had given to her imagination. The goblins of her fancy lurked in every shadow about her, reaching out their cold, fleshless hands to grasp the terrified small girl who had called them into being. A white strip of birch bark blowing up from the hollow over the brown floor of the grove made her heart stand still. The long-drawn wail of two old boughs rubbing against each other brought out the perspiration in beads on her forehead. The swoop of bats in the darkness over her over her was a, as the wings of unearthly creatures. When she reached Mr. William Bell's field, she fled across it as if pursued by an army of white things and arrived at the very kitchen door so out of breath she could hardly gasp at her request for the apron pattern. <clears throat> um, I love that the bit about bitterly did she repent the license she had given her imagination. Yeah, it's a great line. Um, so it seems that she does value it, but she also does, uh, Lucy Montgomery the, does, um, does believe that you have to, you know, rule yourself, right? Yes. You have to, when you're, even the things that you're gifted in or your strengths or whatever, the, the ability to rule yourself is important. And that's, that's the, you know, Anne constantly says it, right? Like when she meets, uh, Diana's great aunt, 
she says, you know, she basically says, uh, Miss, you, you know, Marilla Cuthbert is trying to raise me, right? And she's trying to uh, you know, cure me of all these problems that I have. But it's a, it's a terrible burden for her. And so even Anne <laughs> recognizes that she needs to be, you know, learn to rule herself, so to speak, and control her imagination. And, you know, so she even recognizes it and recognizes the challenge that it is. But, you know, her imagination is so powerful that it can, kind of wins the day pretty often. <laughs> right. I've noticed also that Marilla in this section is learning to not, uh, how do I say this? She doesn't try to just block Anne's imagination or block her kind of joy. She actually lets her sort of indulge it a little bit and... Um, if Anne is getting extremely hot and angry about something, she'll indulge it instead of just saying stop. She'll kind of let it run its course because she's seen Anne has this pattern of kind of coming back after a great wrong and apologizing. The first one being um, when she comes back and she has to apologize to Marilla. Like there's this kind of pattern that Anna's recognizing. She'll kind of come to see the error of her ways. And the more, the more she's kind of given license to explore how she feels, the more rapidly she'll recognize her error. And it seems like Marilla's recognizing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to watch Marilla kind of change. I was thinking how everyone around Anne sort of changes because of her. But... In, uh, Marilla has changed not just in the sense that she's like softened a little bit, but also like her strategies, yeah, if that's the right word, have uh, have evolved. I I'm gonna use a far flung analogy here. I was with my friend Larry. We we rode down the Rogue River in Oregon. It's like really powerful river, and like um, you're tubing or on a canoe or what do you on a on a float. I don't know what you would call it, a, a floating raft, maybe like 15 by seven or eight feet with like, you know, it's inflatable. It's not yeah, a yeah, catamaran, but so, so okay, I'm just, I got to get my imagination going. Here. Yeah. I didn't do a very good job of describing it. So, um, you know, Larry's gone down this river. Were you being pursued by white things? No, we are not being pursued by white things. So I got in the cockpit of the boat, which means that I've got an oar in each hand and I'm the one who's responsible to kind of like follow the river. And I remember if you get into a position where you're fighting against the river, instead of trying to like work with the flow of the water, if you're trying to fight it, you're going to lose every time because you cannot beat the water. There's so much power underneath this boat that you can't wrestle it into place. And it seems like there's something like that going on with Anne that, that mm. Marilla has recognized. She can't just thwart the power of Anne. She cannot block it. She can't stymie it. But what she can do is she can read the way that it's flowing and kind of help direct it. And in the scene that I just read, she basically, you know, what Anne needs there is like someone to tell her, you know, you, you still have responsibilities. You still have things you have to do. You can't let the things that you're imagining eliminate, you know, either your, your courage or your ability to take care of the things you need to take care of. Yeah. Do you, do you, do, uh, when you read this, Heidi, do you like, I mean, I don't, I don't know how exactly to say this. Do, do you, um, are you kind of immune to Anne's, uh, the river rapids, uh, element of her imagination because you're so familiar with all these stories and, you know, they just kind of come one after another. And so for you, it's just like, this is just, and it's just the book or do, do you still like, does how extreme or silly in some ways they are? I, I don't mean to be a little her adventures, uh-huh. but just the way that they're a little silly in some ways. Does that still resonate with you? Yeah. Having read it? <laughs> yeah. I would say I'm definitely the, the second part of what you said that I, I feel, you know, we call them the heart books. I, I feel like this book, I feel it more deeply the more I read it 
because I think my childhood so tied with it. And so I feel like a child again when I read it. Mm. Um, so yeah. when I'm reading this, I'm... I'm nostalgia. <laughs> yes, it is nostalgia. Uh, and it is, it's, it's an interesting kind of, I don't want to call it a dichotomy. It's not a dichotomy. What would I say instead of that? A multi-layered way of interpreting it, reading it for this time for the podcast. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. Story. Yes, of course. So there's a performance aspect tied to it. Um, and I'm remembering, like I always do, my own childhood. I'm thinking about it through... Lucy actually listened to the entire book yesterday or two days ago. She listened to Anne of Anne and Lee yesterday. She listened to Anne of Green Gables the day before. And oh, wow. while she was outside... Um, riding her bike. She put it on Audible, listened to the whole book in a day. Um, wow. But is that the Rachel McAdams reading? It is, yes. That's the one she has. That's the only one that she does. The other ones you can get on Audible for a little bit less uh, because the readers aren't, you know, Rachel McAdams. <laughs> and that one's really good. Her reading's very good. Um, but you can get the whole series on Audible. And... So can yeah, you tell us what, what Lucy's response... This is her first time going through the books, correct? No, she's, read, oh. she's listened to them and read them before. Um, but she she goes pretty much every other series. She listens to Harry Potter and then Anne Green Gables. And then I usually make her listen to something new. And then she just yeah. goes through <laughs> that cycle again. <laughs> so what do you remember what her first responses were to yes, I do. reading Anne of Green Gables? What did she think? She just, she loved it, but she read it differently than I did. Um, she read it as like a, an already happy child. So when she read it, she didn't, um, she just read it differently than I did. I asked her, she just thought it was fun. Like, this is just a really fun book. And then she wanted to cook everything that Anne cooked. So we got an Anne Green Gables cookbook. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So it wasn't it like, was, it was not healing. Well, maybe right, it was right. healing for you. It was a different It more accessed that delight. And she yeah. went outside more. And I love that. And that's one of the things I love about Anne is how much delight and magic she finds in nature. Yeah. And um, that helped unlock that in Lucy. When she listens to Anne of Green Gables, she did, she prefers to listen than to read because she can do something with her hands while she's listening. Um, so, and she always goes outside. And I find that just really interesting. Yeah, she doesn't do the same thing when she's listening to other books. Like she, she doesn't go outside all the time when she's listening to Harry Potter. She goes outside when she's listening to Anne, and I think that's delightful. And there's something about that. And what I, I also love the haunted wood scene. Uh, the, it is the heart of the book, and I, th I know that that's intentional. And it's also by far the experience that Anne refers to the most in later books as being formative to her imagination. She refers to it herself many times later in life as an adult. She tells the story of the haunted wood thing to her kids. Huh. Uh, and she has one child in particular who's very imaginative like she was. And she tells this boy this story. Um, and she laughs at it later as an adult. Of course she does. But it was super formative, very formative to her to have, to, to see kind of, as you pointed out earlier, Tim, the, the sickness, the dark underbelly of, of having an untamed, unruled mm. imagination. And she was on that path. I think the book is, uh, is insinuating that she was so much in her own head that she needed a dose of reality. That's a little bit funny and also quite terrifying. Like this would be really scary. Um, to, ha and, to have to make that walk. Yes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the ghost of the little murder child. And it's hilarious. I'm not trying to make too much of it, but it is really funny. But it's very formative to her to to have that um, those checks and balances imposed mm -hmm. by such a prosaic person as Marilla. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. Well I'm an adult. 
I'm an adult and I have little kids. And when I go for a walk at nighttime in my neighborhood with all the trees around and the owls and the bats, I can imagine up plenty of things that, you know, <laughs> that could be out there getting ready to attack me. So, you know, I kind of understand it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> 12 year old girls. Yes. I mean, I usually don't sprint through the neighborhood at full speed in the middle of the night, but. <laughs> well, we're all doing that. We're all in temptation. We're all under the temptation of doing that now. Like that, that capacity of the imagination to, uh, to invent and indulge in a catastrophe is called catastrophizing. There's a real term for that. And we are in danger in our culture with this epidemic all over the world, people, even people in power, right. Who have power over our imaginations are writing articles left and right about how things are going to go wrong and we're all going to die and things, you know, it's this, this, it's part of the human instinct to catastrophize and it's, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And yeah. Anne has a check and a balance for it. It's funny how easy that mentality is. Like I, I noticed myself the other day, the internet was not, we had a, just a bad connection. And I was like, man, the virus is even affecting the internet. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, wait a second. You know what I mean? Because I'm just like, kind of like, it's sort of this low grade preoccupation with all things virus. And so you start attributing its impact in places where it doesn't belong. Yeah. I was thinking about, I was thinking about how um, I have really bad allergies and the pollen's terrible right now. Like it's just uh, covering my car. And so, you know, if, if none of this was going on, I would be uncomfortable because of allergies. My ears would be, Mm -hmm. you know, have all this pressure in it and my throat would be tickling and like all the things that are normal. But with this kind of hanging over us, you know, that, you know, every little thing becomes cause for fear, you know, because you imagine that the thing that you're, you know, it's this thing that I deal with 75% of the year I'm dealing with allergies or sinus problems in some way. Right. So I'm actually should be used to it. I should know, like intellectually, I should be able to say, okay, I know exactly what this is. Like my brain, my body has a record of what's going on, what's happening to it right now. Um, it even has developed strategies for coping with it. But my imagination, you know, out of fear, you know, turns that into, to, you know, the scratch in the back of my throat that is clearly because of the pollen becomes, you know, a sign that could be something worse, which is not to say we shouldn't be watchful. Um, and we should watch out for ourselves and our families, be cautious and take precautions and things like that. But there's a difference between being cautious and taking precautions and, and allowing our, our imaginations because of fear to, to catastrophize as you're, as you're saying there. So I agree with everything that you're saying, but so what, what I want to do is understand a little bit more about how this ties to Anne, because Heidi, you're saying that she has a check and a balance would you say that that check and balance is inherent or is that being, no. is that what Marilla is nurturing? Yes. It's being formed in her and she, because she's part of a community and it's the community that's healing to her. And I think that's so important in understanding the, the moral universe of Lucy Maud Montgomery is that everybody is subject to the, to being part of a community and Marilla and Anne are so opposite to each other that they form kind of the, like I said, the two, ex- I'm doing the hand motions right now, by the way, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> there, imagine them on a continuum and there's Marilla on one end and Anne on the other. And as they learn to love each other, they bring each other to the mean between the two extremes. And, um, that is part of the formation and the education of Anne. And it's also part of the formation and the education of the people she comes in contact with. Like Diana is another example of that. Diana raised by a really overly strict mother uh, who is kind of not allowed to be an imaginative child. And Anne becomes her com- companion and draws her out of it. But Diana is never going to be like Anne. Um, but the thing about Diana and how she educates and forms Anne is that she's loyal 
and she's steady and it gives Anne somebody to, to lead and Diana somebody to model herself after besides just her strict and overbearing mother. And so that's, and that's, I mean, that is just part of an ordinary life. Like that's not just Anne, that's my life too. And mm. yours, I'm sure that there's no, there's people in my life that there's no Heidi White without this person. Mm. Right? Being somebody different from who I am, but who, because I encounter them regularly and have to adapt myself to them, then I'm formed by them. Mm-hmm. And that's the Anne and Marilla dynamic. And that creates a whole lot of the humor of the story. Uh, and so, you know, for, for kids, they just kind of stay on that humorous level. And a lot of adults do too. And that's perfectly fine. That's the lighthearted nature of the story. But I do notice some of those underlying dynamics too. We um, should probably talk about a couple scenes. Um, we probably have maybe like 20, 25 minutes left here, I would say. So uh, there's, there's some pretty famous scenes in addition to the one about the, uh, the woods that I, that I read. There's the one where she saves um, Diana's sister. And there's also the one where they jump on Diana's aunt. And I feel like we should at least talk on these two quite famous scenes. Um, and then I wanted to see if there was anything else that either of you wanted to make sure we touch on over the last, you know, 20, 25 minutes. Um, I don't mean to abruptly change the subject, but you know, figure this, you know, we got to cover the material here, which is obviously something that we really focus on, on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So is there anything else you want to make sure that you, that we cover besides those two scenes? No, I love talking about those two scenes. So, uh, as a lead into that, while I look for, um, uh, chapter 18 is and called Anne to the rescue. Um, Tim, I've been asking you, you know, from your perspective as someone who's never read the story before, only, you know, bar- you know, barely, well, I don't say barely, but only loosely familiar with this character and the seasons yeah. that. How has your, you know, your uh, opinion of Anne changed? You, you talked about how she was, you know, very delightful. Has that, has it deepened? Has it, uh, what's the opposite of deepened? Out of shower doesn't seem like the right word, but has it changed? <laughs> has your perspective on on Anne changed each time we, you know, each, each, through each section that we've read? Yeah, she. I mean, she's just growing up. It's great. She's growing up, but she's not losing the thing that makes her Anne Shirley. I mean, she's she's not losing like the kind of like wild delight of being that is Anne Shirley. Yeah. So it, I keep thinking of like bad analogies to kind of compare to, but I mean, she's, she's like a puppy, you know, when she first shows up and she's doing all the things that puppies do, she's destroying furniture and, um, getting into things that she shouldn't, but she's not becoming as she's kind of growing up. She's not knowing on the furniture anymore but she's still retaining kind of like all of the zest and energy of the puppy as she's becoming, you know, an adult. So I think, I think it's great. Like, and I think this scene, especially the croup scene is like a real evidence that she has this sort of like capacity within her. That's um, real evidence of maybe like like a signal event of, her becoming an adult. She is put in this um, catastrophic, potentially potentially catastrophic position, and she saves this child's life through her attention and care, and she focuses all of her energy and corrals her imagination to focus on the well-being of this child, and everyone kind of can see it by the end. It's great. This is a great scene. This seems like a mile marker in the book. It's almost exactly halfway through, right? Didn't you say that, David? Uh, yeah, chapters wise, it's I think exactly halfway through. Pages wise, it's just short of it. Depends. We, I guess it depends on the edition. We've we've talked about how oftentimes books will have a kind of pivotal moment in which the the hero kind of changes their agenda you know, from seeking to understand to action. And I just wonder if the design of this book is such that this scene 
is kind of a shift. Obviously, I don't know. I haven't read the book. I've only read through the chapters that we read this week. But I wonder if it is kind of a signal in an event that will evidence that, yeah, Anna's really, she's becoming a young woman. Well, I do, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I do think that this whole section includes a number of things that signal a change. So there's there's this scene, uh, which we can talk about in depth here in a second, but there's also her sort of academic war with Gilbert. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Almost last week, that comes to the surface here in this section. And so that suggests a sort of, you know, her competitive nature. We're learning more about her. Um, it also shows, you know, she's more than imaginative. She's quite smart. She's capable. Um, you know, she's, when she puts her mind to something, she can be, she can, she can, uh, accomplish things. Um, and then there's, you know, her ability to, you know, win people over continues to show up with, with, um, Diana's rich aunt. And so a number of things that I think are set in place are creating some, some of the action that leads into the second half of the book as things, as we lead up to, you know, the denouement and, you know, setting the stage for the future books and things like that. But it's also in this section, isn't it? Is it, is it Mr. Phillips who says that he's, that she is um, one of the most clever students that he has? Yes. So another kind of like evidence that she has got great gifts and she's beginning to bring those gifts to bear on this town. It's the exact, it's chapter 18. It's the same chapter as the, where she saves the day because she's sitting and talking to Matthew before uh, Diana bursts in the door. And um, they're chatting, and uh, um, she says, "I guess you're all right at anything." Mr. Phillips told me last week in Blair's store at Carmody that you were the, that you was the smartest scholar in school and was making rapid progress. Rapid progress was his very words. There's them as runs down Teddy Phillips and says he ain't much of a teacher, but I guess he's all right. Matthew would have thought anyone who praised Anne was all right. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, where does this scene where she saves the day rank for you in the adventures of Anne Shirley uh, in terms of like all the different escapades and, you know, you had to rank the 10 different escapades in this book. Where does this fall? In fact, we should make this list. Heidi of Anna Green Gables escapades. And at the end of the book, you should have to take us through the, take them through the, take us through the order from bottom to 10 to one or whatever. What is the... What is the criteria? What am I judging? Well, like your ranking? <laughs> it's not. I you gave me the assignment. <laughs> it's. I knew you were going to say that though, because that's what you say about the um, the every year right. on the close. <laughs> you're like you make up your own criteria yeah. on the yeah. brackets. Yeah, yeah. Um. The I th- this one's pretty high. It's a turning point, and it gives it it establishes her in the community also as somebody who is, she's not just a dependent orphan anymore in the minds of Avonlea. Uh, She, she already has earned a reputation of being a smart scholar and of being uh, a good friend, like the other kids like her and Marilla was worried about that. Uh, But here adults are starting to take her seriously as somebody who has something to offer. Uh, And she's been around long enough in the community that now she's not just like Marilla's weird orphan. Um, so <laughs> yeah. that is, I think that it's, it's pretty high. Uh, and it obviously has the, the immediate goal of reuniting her with Diana, which is extremely important to Anne. And I think it would have been very detrimental to her if that had not happened. Like that would have done something to her another permanent rejection in her life. Mm. Like she really needs Diana. So mm-hmm. and Diana needs her. I was wondering though, if the book shouldn't have had them separated a little bit longer, like make it hurt a little bit more for the reader. <laughs> yeah. I, I've always thought that same thing too. It happens too quickly. But you it's, know, it's, go ahead, go Tim. Go Tim. Well, just to defend Montgomery a little bit. I, for me reading it for the first time, I knew that nothing bad could happen. I mean, of course, in like real life, in that situation, it could be potentially terrible. But just given the overall levity and arc of this book, I didn't worry that much. And so I wonder if Montgomery dwelt on it for too long, um, 
she would be asking us to kind of like suspend our belief in everything that she's written in the book up until this moment. Hmm. So, yeah, maybe so, so. Like, so then would the book, does the, would it not fit the book for something like tragic to happen in it? I, I don't think so. I mean, hurts, pains, setbacks, yes. But something as profoundly tragic as the death of a child, no, I don't think this book is, it's not structured to kind of carry that sort of weight. Right, agreed. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, it, you know, as Heidi, you were talking there, you were saying something about how it brings her into the community. So like for the first part of the book, it's been sort of her and her friends and Matthew and Marilla and, and Rachel. So like the little kind of, you know, there's this small circle. But the, the circle is sort of sort of being expanded here, and it, it, it's interesting that all this is happening while Marilla and Rachel are off at a political rally or event or something like that. And she and Matthew are talking about politics, and you know uh, you, you, that she's going to be a conservative because Matthew's a conservative and all that kind of stuff. And so the the, the broader picture of the community, like they're all even excited that the Canadian premier deign to show himself in their little island, right? It's uh, all this is going on with the backdrop of sort of larger community interests. And I, so it does seem that that, like that probably is what she's going after here is to make Anne more of a fabric of the whole community and not just, and then it broadens the whole scope of the book, not just Anne's adventures, but you know, the world that we're living in is getting broader and the world that we're living in as readers, I mean, is getting broader. Um, and and everything and it, it adds like a layer of social complexity to the novel that wasn't there when it's the story of you know just Anne and trying to fit in with these people in her you know immediate orbit. Right, I agree, and it also I think brings her past into her present, so it's not so disconnected, right? Like Anne comes to Greg Gables and then forgets all about all the bad things that have ever happened to her. It it gives her an opportunity to bring what she learned as basically a, a drudge or a slave uh, in, to being a healing force within the Avonlea community. Uh, and that's, I think that's part of that, the development of, of her character and her healing. Let's, um, the other scene is the one where she jumps on, <laughs> guys just just to pause i got a just i just got a text from lucy who's you know in the same house as me saying can i dig a hole in the back of the property <laughs> wait who said this you broke up with- yeah lucy she <laughs> wants to know if she can dig a hole in the back of the property yes say, exclamation I point <laughs> as a matter of fact <laughs> great idea <laughs> Just space we have set aside for it. My kids yes. dug a giant hole and then filled it with leaves so that nobody would get hurt when they fell in. <laughs> I was a kid. I have many hole digging stories. We lived in this house where the garden was at the back of the property. And as a kid, I, as a seven year old or whatever, I remember the yard being pretty big. But we drove by it when we visited my grandparents one time, and it wasn't that big. But at the back of it was this garden. And so we thought we were going to, we were going to dig a hole and then use it for all kinds of exploits. Um, we would, we would dig them, um, and then put boards over it and pretend it was the cockpit of an airplane uh-huh. and then we would use it for, um, to hide in when we were getting shot at by the bad guys. Like, 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 like everyone does, like you have to have a, of course, have have a ditch to, to jump into and like twist your ankle. Yeah. Um, no, you need to be able to hide. To the garden. And you know, eventually holes have to get bigger. You know, you, a hole can't stay stagnant. If a hole stays stagnant, it's a problem. So right. it was increasingly encroaching upon the garden. I would say always encroaching upon the garden. And that was sort of a, you know, annoyance. But then even more annoying, when we moved into our next house, my brother and I had just read Tom Sawyer. And so we went into my sister's room, as one does, and took a bunch of her stuff. And then we went and buried it behind the shed. So they, she didn't know about it for like a year. So that was, you know, that, that's just the sort of things you do when you're digging holes. Right, so you yeah. might want to make sure that you can carry any of your stuff in the hole. This is a lesson <laughs> I'm trying to say. Here. That is a good lesson. And I feel like this is a really appropriate digression from Anne Green Gables and not really a digression at all, because this is something that I'm sure. It's the sort Anne, of thing that she would do. Absolutely. Yeah. We just felt like, you know, 
if you're not burying their stuff behind the shed, then what's the point of having a little sister? <laughs> things I should text Jack White. Yes. Jack White may have grown up a little bit more than we did at that point, and he might have. Uh, oh, no, he definitely hasn't. Actually, he and his buddy last week, before the stay-at-home order hit, dug two giant holes at opposite ends of the property so that and planning to slowly dig towards each other in tunnels underground and thus far they've gotten like they dig they dug deep enough to get to their shoulders but they have not yet begun digging the underground trenches towards each other so i'll keep you posted on that one (laughs) That's a that's a significant amount of work, though. So. That is. That's an undertaking. Yeah, it's that, true. That's probably, it's probably good for them just to have to do that work. Yeah. I mean, especially boys. I mean, teenage boys in uh, under a stay-at-home order. Like, I feel oh, bad man. for them. Yeah, you know, no they just, doubt. They need more than... They do need more than I can provide for them, which is appropriate for... I'm, I am no longer their world. So, that's... We're trying to figure that one out. <laughs> well, my... Kids are my boys are eight, seven, and he, he turns four this month. So eight, eight, seven, and three, and they're going absolutely crazy. Like mm-hmm. they're just constantly sword fighting with sticks and smashing each other on the head and tackling each other in the yard. And mm-hmm. you know, it's not that much different than normal. It's just more often now than normal. <laughs> right. But speaking of bashing people with heads, maybe we should talk for a few minutes about uh, the introduction of Diana's aunt. <laughs> very, very good. Great transition. Well nice done. segue. Yeah. David, you have an ability, buddy. Uh, <laughs> it's tw- ni- chapter 19? No, tw- 20. 20. No, 21. Isn't 21 the one about the cake? Yeah, so it's 19. 20 yeah. is the one about a good imagination gone wrong. Yeah. So it's 19. Yes, Sorry. 19. Mm-hmm. So she's going to stay with Diana. Um, another thing that's done pretty well in the, in the movie. And she convinces Marilla to let her go. Mm-hmm. Well, no, she doesn't. Matthew convinces Marilla to, to let her go. And um, she, she goes, they go to the concert. She doesn't listen to Gilbert. She reads the library book while Gilbert is doing his recitation. And then <laughs> into the house and they decide to run down the hall and jump into the bed because she's so excited about sleeping in a spare room of all places. She's going to sleep in a spare room. Uh, because she is not someone who has gotten to sleep in spare rooms very often, unlike Diana's aunt. And they jump on the bed, and Diana, <laughs> Diana's aunt wakes up and then um, insists on leaving the next day because she's so angry. So I wanted to talk about not so much the scene, but the conversation between Diana and the great aunt. I mean, not Diana, Anne and the great aunt, but where she convinces, she makes friends with her, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end, towards the end of chapter 19, I thought we could read this. And I thought it'd be funny to actually have, Aunt, how did you play Anne? And Tim, how did you play the great aunt? Um, wait, Aunt's why? Josephine, you are I, I feel like I've been typecast <laughs> as an old curmudgeon. <laughs> well, I mean, you know... A new point in your career. Right. <laughs> like you can't play, you, you, you just can't play the high school students anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> you might need to start accepting that the work is going to be more limited unless you're willing to you know, accept a certain role. Yeah. Okay. Um, might be you time to enter into the directorial stage of your career. You know <laughs> <laughs> Play old curmudgeons in direct movies about young people. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, it, there's, a, um, there's a line of the paragraph that begins with this encouragement and beard the lion in its den. Do you see that? Yes. So I'll play the narrator because okay. I understand my limitations as well. And, <laughs> and then, Tim, you play Aunt Josephine. And Heidi, you play Anne. Okay. Right. With, with this encouragement, and bearded the lion in its den. That is to say, walked resolutely up to the sitting room door and knocked faintly. A sharp, come in, followed. Miss Josephine Barry, thin, prim, and rigid. Three things that described him. Was admitting <laughs> fiercely by the fire, her wrath quite unappeased and her eyes snapping through her gold-rimmed glasses. She wheeled around in her chair, expecting to see Diana, 
and beheld a white-faced girl whose great eyes were brimmed up with a mixture of desperate courage and shrinking terror. Who are you? Demanded Miss Blaziken Barry without ceremony. I'm Anne of Green Gables, and I've come to confess, if you please. Confess what? That it was all my fault about jumping into bed on you last night. I suggested it. Diana would never have thought of such a thing. I am sure Diana is a very ladylike girl, Miss Barry, so you must see how unjust it is to blame her. Oh, I must, hey? I rather think Diana did her share of jumping at least. Such carrings on a respectable house. But we were only in fun. I think you ought to forgive us, Miss Barry, now that we've apologized. And anyhow, please forgive Diana and let her have her music lessons. Diana's heart is set on her music lessons, Miss Barry, and I know too well what it is to set your heart on a thing and not get it. If you must be cross with anyone, be cross with me. I've been so used to my in my early days to having people cross at me that I can endure it much better than Diana can. Much of the snap had gone out of the old lady's eyes by this time and was replaced by a twinkle of amused interest. But she still said severely, I don't think it is any excuse for you that you were only in fun. Little girls never indulged in that kind of fun when I was young. You don't know what it is to be awakened out of a sound sleep after a long and arduous journey by two great girls coming bouncing down on you. I don't know, but I can imagine. I'm sure it must have been very disturbing. But then there is our side of it, too. Have you any imagination, Miss Barry? If you have, just put yourself in our place We didn't know there was anybody in that bed, and you nearly scared us to death. It was simply awful the way we felt. And then we couldn't sleep in the spare room after being promised. I suppose you are used to sleeping in spare rooms, but just imagine what you would feel like if you were a little orphan girl who had never had such an honor. All the snap had gone by this time. Miss Barry actually laughed, a sound which caused Diana, waiting in speechless anxiety in the kitchen outside, to give a great grasp of relief. Before we continue, Tim, could you give us a little taste of what that laugh might have sounded like? (laughs) No, and I think think it'd be a little bit more muffled. That was a little bit more, so it's more like, (laughs) something like (laughs) that. That was great. I gotta work on it. Carry on. I'm afraid my imagination is a little rusty. It's so long since I used it. I dare say your claim to sympathy is just as strong as mine. It all depends on the way we look at it. Sit down and tell me about yourself. I am very sorry I can't. I would like to because you seem like an interesting lady and you might even be a kindred spirit, although you don't very much look like it. But it is my duty to go home to Miss Marilla Cuthbert. Miss Marilla Cuthbert is a very kind lady who has taken me to bring me up properly. She is doing her best, but it is very discouraging work. You must not blame her because I jumped on the bed. But before I go, I do wish you would tell me if you will forgive Diana and stay just as long as you meant to in Avonlea. I think perhaps I will, if you will come over and talk to me occasionally. That evening, Miss Barry gave Diana a silver bangle bracelet and told the senior members of the household that she had unpacked her valise. I've made up my mind to stay simply for the sake of getting better acquainted with that Anne girl. She amuses me. Anne, at my time of life, an amusing person is a rarity. Marilla's only comment when she heard the story was, I told you so. This was for Matthew's benefit. Miss Barry stayed with her month out and over. She was a more agreeable guest than usual, for Anne kept her in good humor. They became firm friends. Miss Barry was a kindred spirit after all. You wouldn't think so to look at her, but she is. You don't find it right out at first, as in Matthew's case, but after a while you come to see it. Kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid to find out there are so many of them in the world. The great little coda to the section. I love the way in this, like Anne's sense of justice is so much a part of this whole book. We're going to, we're going to see that sort of play out in her relationship with Gilbert in a couple of instances. Um, But one of the things I love about it is the way she has this really firm sense of like, what is just right? Like in this case, it's like, we have apologized. Therefore you ought to forgive us. I came up with it. Therefore you ought to not blame Diana. You know, 
her sense of justice also allows her to to take the blame for things. Like she's got a nobility about her, but also sometimes it gets a little bit subverted and like you know maybe maybe justice isn't quite as clean as she thinks it is. But there's something very um, endearing about about the way she used justice in the world. Um, but maybe I'm just like. I don't know why that that particular thing stood out to me for this for this section. I just love we apologized, and so you should forgive us. Which is, I feel like I've heard that from my kids many times, or like something <laughs> like that. <laughs> is it does it is it always un, unlike Anne's scenario here with your kids? Is it like a preemptive attempt to mitigate some damage done? Like, um. Yes, I know that we broke the neighbor's window <laughs> with the baseball, and I know that you don't know about it yet, but we are now asking for forgiveness, and because we ask for forgiveness, the mechanism of forgiveness is you owe this to us. Is this anything like that? I don't know that my kids are quite old enough yet to be that. Okay, okay. That's savvy. Yeah, but there is a there has emerged a recent trend with my oldest child where his conscience pains him enough <laughs> or come to me, you know, like he'll have taken the iPad and gone to, you know, look up something about, I don't know, some risk, like he'll go to play risk online, which he's only supposed to do with my dad. Um, it's like one of the things they do together. And so he'll, he'll go do that, but then he won't play. He either won't have asked or he'll, you know, whatever it is, or he'll have taken some candy or something that he's not supposed to eat. And then he'll come to me, the game half played, the cookie half eaten, and he'll be like, "No, I didn't ask, but, um, 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 but, but <laughs> here you go." <laughs> and, and then I'll just be, I'll just kind of give him that look, you know, and then he'll just walk away with his tail between his legs. Yeah. And then we'll, you know, I'll, I'll say something to him later. But in those moments, it's like probably not necessary for me to say anything to him because he already feels, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. bad. Um, but like children have this very distinct and unique sense of the way justice works in the world. And like, they really believe in it. That's the thing. Like for sure. They really believe that justice is a thing that ought to be doled out. And they feel, they feel it when they're part of the problem, you know, when, when they're part of the reason that justice has been, has been, um, Thwarted. Or like when they, when they know, when they know that justice is warranted against them, they really feel it. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And you do see that in this book over and over again. And Anne's great desire to do good uh, and also her imagination and her impulsiveness and her vanity. You know, she has bad qualities that cause a lot of damage and in her small world, you know, and but she's eager to make them right, which is endearing. Well, one of the reasons I think the second half of this novel is really, really good and a little bit more complex than the first half is because um, there's even this sense that like, so she has this sense of justice, but her sense of justice gets completely out of whack. Like she holds grudges against Gilbert, say, in a way that are not, that are not just. And so she has to learn about, just like with her imagination, about like, being having a being the ruler of, over her own self, you know, and I think that uh, it, the book gets really interesting in the way that it explores that sort of thing. So, I guess that's my you know final thought preview for the next section. So, Tim, look out for more contemplations of justice. I guess. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to. I'm going to. <laughs> well, I guess that's a good time to to let you both offer some final thoughts. Heidi, what's your final thought, and then Tim, let you close us out. Well, as you both pointed out um, this novel has a structure to it. It feels like it's just episodes, right? This chapter is about Anne setting Diana drunk, and then there's another chapter. So in a way, it kind of feels like beads on a string, but there is also a development. There's not necessarily one cohesive plot, but it's moving towards something, which is the formation and the education towards goodness of Anne and her community. And We've gotten to the middle of the novel. And so I would look for, as you continue reading, look for threads that have been thrown out that are now going to be maybe resolved or expanded and explored. For example, 
the friendship with Diana is now solidified, right? There was a kind of a beginning point and then a break. Now it's solidified. Now kind of look for it to become a permanent fixture of her life and how that's going to play out. Um, and then we're looking for more with Gilbert. Uh, that's been, that's a thread that's unresolved. So look for that to happen. So what are my, my encouragement would be as you're noticing the beads on a string, also notice that there's, there is a development in which threads have been thrown out that they're now they're going to be woven together. Mm. All right, Tim, your final thoughts. What are, what are you excited for? What are you, what are you, I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever. you have a chance to say whatever you want. We can talk about basketball again, if you want. I want to echo what Heidi said. As a first-time reader of Anne of Green Gables, this is the moment where I do see that these episodes are very delicately structured, like they're working together. Because I I didn't see it until this section. It just it felt like an episodic book. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a cohesive whole that's developing. And I think it's a tribute to the dexterity of our writer that it kind of took a while to see it. You know, it's not, she's not um, drawing in such big, bold lines that, you know, you're kind of smacked back by it. It, it took me some time to appreciate it. One of the things that I've, I've noticed is um, Anne's affections are, or, or maybe her attention is being shifted from the natural world to the human world. Mm. And so I'm, I'm curious to see how the one feeds the other, if in fact it does. That's a good point. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to look for that. I haven't, I haven't thought about that before. <sighs> um, even, even her, like the talk of politics and stuff is so out of the ordinary with this book. I could to hear that to hear them talking about you know conservatism and liberalism liberalism and you know things like that just it feels different than the rest of the book mm. uh, at least for Anne to participate in it so yeah all right well thanks to you both um thanks to everyone who's been listening uh, we'd love to hear from you you can get in touch with us join the conversation over on facebook and don't forget about the bonus episodes over on patreon our account is patreon.com slash close reads we are working our way through crime and punishment we are just posted the episode yesterday uh which is part three chapters one through three and uh we're i'm going to be diving into a lot more about uh one of the key characters in the next section so got a little bit of time to catch up before we dive into we get to know sonia a little bit more do either of you want to say anything about those those bonus episodes we've been doing before we uh officially end this recording and, and say farewell either of you want to say anything about that i do i i've loved the bonus episodes i love having the opportunity to kind of sink our teeth into a really uh, like meaty book that takes a long time that we're talking about uh, uh, going a lot deeper. I feel like in this particular book, partly because of the nature of the book and partly because we just have more time. And mm -hmm. I love that. And then yeah. also I think for my other comment is that I've been thinking a lot uh, as we do Anne Green Gables on one hand and Crime and Punishment on the other of the kind of the romantic ideal in approaching the world and suffering and human life and ordinary life versus <laughs> Dostoevsky's kind of Russian darkness and existential uh, and political contemplations in uh, Crime and Punishment. And, and I've been thinking about those two perspectives on literature and, and there's a place for both of them in literature. And I think there's a place for both of them in the human life. They're both true. Mm. Uh, and, and so I've been thinking a lot about that. And so I'd be curious for, for listeners uh, and readers who are listening to both, just their thoughts on that, Yeah, you know, post that maybe on the Facebook page or send us a PM, but I'm, I'm really interested in that. I've been think, putting, I've been thinking a lot about that. Hmm. Tim, do you want to add anything? I, I agree with Heidi that reading these two books kind of in juxtaposition with each other, it really isn't a study. It's a study in literature because 
man, Dostoevsky is, it is like realism with the capital R and Anne of Green Gables. I, I'm just going to use Heidi's word. I think you called it, maybe it's like romanticism. Um, but as a, I mean, that is a complimentary mm-hmm. word. Some people use that as a derogatory word in kind of like the history of ideas. And they both, each of these books, they function on you in such a profoundly different way. And they're both just wildly successful. You know, it's kind of like if you, if you just made your playbook of literature based on one book and not the other book, then I think you've got kind of an impoverished vision of mm-hmm. literature. But if you can embrace both of these kind of accounts of just like the glories of reading, then I think that you've expanded your capacity as a reader. You know, you're starting to approximate the size of your capacity as a reader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said. Can I say can I say one more thing, David? Yeah, of course. There have been a few people on the Close Reads Facebook page that have been asking about, hey, when's the next The Plays the Thing um, going to be released? Heidi and I are working on it. We have decided to release um, the play that we're working on now, which is As You Like It, in a batch. That's why we haven't released them one after the other. So we have two more episodes uh, before we release that batch. And hopefully, I don't know, Heidi, next 10 days is when we're hoping to finish recording. Absolutely. That sounds great. Cool. Yep. Just get us those files and we'll get them up for the people. Get the people what they want. Get the people what they want. As Jalen Rose says, Tim knows who that is. (laughs) I do. Um, All right. Well, thanks to you both. Those were were great final thoughts. I actually uh, really appreciate both what you both said there about um, that that reading these books together is... It's kind of like that's what the reading life is supposed to be like. So that you know what that was really well said by both of you. When I said I actually appreciated it, I didn't mean it like I actually appreciated, unlike most of the other things that you said. You're like, wow, I actually appreciate what you're saying right now. All right, well, with that, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.